This is The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. This is a platform designed for education of plastics, hand, and craniofacial surgery trainees, from medical student to master surgeon. Our episodes take you through the high-yield topics, along with experts in the field, in order to maximize your knowledge and refine your techniques. If you like what you hear today, be sure to visit our website at theresidentreview.com for episodes, outlines, resources, and more. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. And welcome back to the Resident Review Quick Hit Series. This is Tori and Rosie, and today we're going to be talking about hand fractures. All right. Um, okay, so to get started, um, the organization of this lecture is going to be from distal to proximal in the hand. Um, and then first I'll tell you about a couple general principles in fractures. So spiral fractures are a result of torsional forces. And axial loading compression causes oblique fractures. And then a tension or a three-point bend causes transverse fractures. So now we'll start going from distal to proximal of the hand. We'll start with distal phalanx fractures. Open fractures of the distal phalanx do not require antibiotics. Tuft fractures or fractures at the very tip of the distal phalanx can be splinted usually. Um, shaft fractures of the distal phalanx, you can splint them or do operative fixation based on their stability or base fractures of the distal phalanx. Um, DIP fractures involving the joint surface can cause persistent subluxation if they involve over 50% of the joint surface. So tra surgical treatment is recommended if uh, over one third of the articular surface is involved. If not, you can do conservative treatment with uh, splinting the DIP and extension for six to eight weeks, leaving the PIP free. And you might notice an extensor lag in these cases. For every one millimeter length, length of the extensor tendon, you'll have an extensor lag of 25 degrees. Um, Seymour fractures are a very specific type of distal phalanx fracture. The longer name would be a Seymour Salter Harris fracture. These are fractures of the growth plate of the distal phalanx with interposition of the proximal nail matrix within the fracture. Because there's interposition of this nail matrix, it requires an open reduction so you can get that segment out of there so you can get the bones to oppose. You'll have to remove the nail and remove the interposed journal matrix and then splint it or um, pin it in place. That is always considered an open fracture. Moving on to the DIP joint, a mallet finger is caused by a sudden forced flexion, which disrupts the terminal extensor tendon distal to the DIP joint. And the fingertip will rest at around 45 degrees of flexion, and it cannot be actively extended. Jersey finger is an avulsion of the FDP from the distal phalanx, most commonly of the ring finger. And there are different types of this. Type 1 jersey finger retracts into the palm. And you should repair this within a couple of weeks because it will retract. Type two retracts only to the PIP and the A3 pulley. You'll have to repair this within three months. Um, and then type three retracts to the A4 pulley and can be repaired at any time because it basically is still extended out to length. And you will want to do an open reduction and fixation, often with screws or wiring. All right. Yeah, try on. To the middle phalanx, making our way down the finger. Um, <laughs> so for head fractures, um, classifying these fractures that extend into the DIP joint, you use the London classification. The 
first category is a non-displaced unicondylar. These can be treated with um, orthosis for three weeks or buddy taping for two to three weeks. And a type two is an unstable unicondylar fracture, and that can be fixed with K-wires or screw fixation. And a type three is an unstable bicondylar comminuted. These are difficult to reconstruct um, because of the comminuted nature of the fractures. Shaft fractures of the middle phalanx, these are stable fractures after reduction, or if they are stable fractures after reduction, they can be treated closed. So three weeks of splinting um, and then buddy taping for two to three weeks. Acceptable alignment includes no clinical malrotation and angulation of, and no angulation greater than 10 degrees. And then oblique fractures need K-wire or screw fixation. Moving on to the PIP joint or the proximal IP joint, um, talking about volar dis dislocation, so the distal aspect being volar. Um, these are usually irreducible due to the partial rupture of the volar plate. The condyle can then become entrapped between the central slip and the lateral band fibers, aka a buttonhole. And then a central slip injury in this case is common. Lack of recognition of, recognition of this can lead to boutonniere deformity. So you want to reduce these via gentle traction and MCP or PIP flexion. Um, you want to do, if you're doing a repair that includes the central slip and lateral band repair, you want to divide the transverse retinacular ligaments when doing this. And you may need to divide the A3 pulley in order to move the condyle back beneath the flexor tendons. Buddy taping can be used uh, for PIP joint collateral ligament injury. And in terms of fracture dislocation, if it's less than 25% of the articular surface, you can splint it. If it's greater than 25% of the articular surface, it needs operative stabilization. So moving on to dorsal dislocations of the PIP, meaning that the distal is dorsally angulated, these are more stable in flexion and unstable in extension. In terms of reduction, the FDP and volar plate can block your reduction when trying to do so. Um, the V sign on lateral X-ray results from dorsal subluxation of the middle phalanx. For fracture dislocation, if it can be reduced in less than 30 degrees of flexion, or if there is less than 20% of articular involvement of the middle phalanx space, it's considered stable. If it's greater than 50% of the articular um, space, then that is an, considered an unstable. Uh, Anything function. in between is just indeterminate. Great, love a great <laughs> Fifty <laughs> percent. You just yes, I guess. Just guess. Just yeah. just guess. Uh, really, you just do whatever your attending tells you to do. When you <laughs> um, in terms of treatment options, if it's stable, you can do extension block splinting versus pinning. If it's unstable or comminuted, you can use an X fix and dynamic traction. If it's unstable with large pieces, you may be able to do ORIF, um, but you need the dorsal lip to be intact to achieve this. For post-traumatic degeneration of the PIP joint in ulnar digits, arthrodesis is the treatment. For destroyed radial digits, just sounds aggressive, destroyed radial digits, <laughs> um, is recommended over arthrodesis. Another option for fractures less than 50 to 60% of the articular base of the middle phalanx is a volar plate arthroplasty. If the fractures are greater than 50% of the articular surface, um, like we mentioned above, then you wanna do a hemihamate arthroplasty. The most common complication of this is arthrosis. All right. Yeah, moving on to the proximal phalanx. 
Um, so a little bit of anatomy, angulation in these fractures is always volar. The proximal fragment is flexed by the interosseous attachments while the distal fragment is extended by the extensor central slip resulting in PIP extension lag. For non-displaced closed fractures of the proximal phalanx, you can do buddy taping and um, encourage early range of motion. They will need to have at least 50% opposition of the bones, no malrotation and full flexion, and less than 15 degrees of sagittal or frontal plane angulation. The reduction maneuver for proximal phalanx fractures would be digital traction and then flexion of the MCP. And then if they're unstable or non-reducible, they will need operative fixation. Moving approximately to the MCP joint, a little bit of anatomy um, of the different ligaments involved. The UCL, the ulnar, ulnar collateral ligament proper originates from the dorsal ulnar aspect of the um, MP head and inserts into the volar part of the proximal phalanx. The accessory UCL is contiguous, but it's just volar to the proper and it inserts on the volar plate of the MCP. The radial collateral ligament, the RCL proper, originates dorsal radial and attaches to the lateral tubercle of the proximal phalanx. For MCP dorsal dislocations, so again, fractures are described based on the distal segment's position relative to the joint. So the finger is dorsal and the metacarpal head is volar. You may also present with flexion of the PIP and DIP. And the index finger is most commonly involved. The mechanism for MCP dorsal dislocation is usually forced hyperextension. So first you'll want to attempt closed reduction. If it's non-reducible, it's likely to have injury or displacement of the volar plate, the FDP or the lumbricals. The flexor tendons will generally displace ulnar to the metacarpal head, except for in the small finger where it goes radial. Although in the small finger, the ADM and FDM still go ulnar. And the radial digital nerve ends up superficial to these structures, so it is more at risk with a volar open approach to fixation. So in order to reduce these, closed reduction is attempted with wrist flexion, which relaxes the flexors, gentle extension, and then you put gentle pressure down on the dorsal proximal phalanx. Avoid some avoid taut longitudinal traction, as this can essentially create a noose within the lumbrical and the flexor tendon. Which, present, which prevent reduction. Open reduction of these, um, division of the volar plate is usually needed in this case because it might be stuck in the dislocated joint. And for MCP dorsal dislocation of the thumb, typically this can be closed reduced with gentle hyperextension of the MCP and direct pressure on the dorsal base of the proximal phalanx. The FPL and thenar musculature can also trap the metacarpal head like a noose. So wrist flexion, like I said, can alleviate that tension. MCP volar dislocations are rare and generally closed reduction is successful in these cases. And then a little bit about ligamentous injury because we talked about the RCL and the UCL. RCL injuries occur with acute adduction, adduction. UCL injuries occur with acute abduction. So the, the UCL injuries that we hear about are often skiers thumb for acute injuries or gamekeepers thumb for chronic injuries. A stenter lesion of the thumb is when the UCL avulses and retracts proximally and the adductor aponeurosis interposes and precludes primary healing. Diagnosis of these ligamentous injuries is with a, an exam that shows 10 to 15 degrees of laxity in excess of the contralateral side. So you have to look at both sides and that indicates a complete tear. You can get an ultrasound, but an MRI is the most sensitive and specific. 
And treatment-wise, for strain or laxity, this can be treated with immobilization, but avulsions or tears generally will need uh, repair and more often reconstruction. All right, let's move down to the metacarpal itself. Um, so briefly talking about the joint types um, with the metacarpals, it's a hinge joint for the thumb and a condyloid for the index and small fingers. The CAM effect is a construct that translates rotary motion um, into linear motion. So flexion of the metacarpal um, puts stretch on the collateral ligaments. Dorsal wounds over metacarpal fractures are almost always open to the fracture. Volar wounds may not communicate. Um, in terms of imaging of the metacarpals, you wanna do standard PA lateral and oblique films. You can do a Burton film or a view for a metacarpal head. You wanna do a 30 to 45 degree oblique for the CMC and then a Roberts view for the thumb CMC in terms of your x-rays. The metacarpal head fractures. Um, so no degree of articular displacement is acceptable in these fractures. You wanna perform ORAF uh, via dorsal incision with the central split of the extensor hood or release and repair of the sagittal bands. Um, if severely comminuted, consider an X-fix or MCP joint replacement. Arthrodesis or arthroplasty are the last options. In terms of metacarpal neck fractures, these occur when an axial load is applied to a clenched fist. Apex dorsal angulation happens because the intrinsic muscles lie volar to the metacarpal neck. Acceptable angulation, uh, these are just sort of numbers to group together if you can. So the index in the middle, you can have an acceptable angulation of 10 to 15 degrees. For the ring finger, it's 20 to 40 degrees, and the small has the greatest variation of acceptable angulation, that's 20 to 60 degrees. In terms of deformity from the fracture, you see a loss of appearance of the knuckle, a bump in the palm, or pseudo-clawing, which is MCP hyperextension and PIP flexion. For reduction, you wanna do a JAS maneuver. This is 90 degrees of MCP flexion, and then providing dorsal pressure through the proximal phalanx while stabilizing the metacarpal shaft. In terms of further details about treatment, you wanna do cast immobilization with the MCP in 70 to 90 degrees in order to stretch the collaterals and you keep the PIP free. And that casting should remain for three to four weeks. If you're doing operative treatment, which would be for any malrotation or any unacceptable angulation, you wanna do closed reduction with percutaneous pinning with the MCP flexed to prevent the collateral contractures or to prevent collateral contractures. And you wanna leave the PIP free again here to encourage PIP motion. The treatment for metacarpal shaft fractures is gonna be the same as metacarpal neck. You wanna do casting or ORIF. That can include plating or intramedullary nail. You wanna use a non-compressing fixation for oblique fractures and then compression fixation for transverse fractures. To reduce metacarpal shaft fractures, you want to, if it's apex dorsal, you want to do volarly directed pressure with the proximal phalanx flexed and then provide traction and monitor your angulation. So um, the inner ossei originate on the metacarpal shaft, so they will be attached to the fracture fragment is something to note and something that we were tested on last year. Mm -hmm. Metacarpal base fractures, so extra articular fractures, you wanna treat similar to metacarpal fractures in general. If they're intra-articular fractures, they need anatomic reduction. You wanna consider a CT scan and likely you're gonna be pursuing ORAF to reduce these. Additional X-ray views can include AP view with the forearm pronated 30 degrees. That can show the fifth CMC better um, or lateral with 30 degrees again for the fifth CMC. 
Now we're going to move on to some specifics about individual metacarpals that are relevant um, that we've been tested on. So for the first metacarpal, if you have an extra articular metacarpal base fracture of the first metacarpal, aka the thumb, then this presents in apex dorsal angulation uh, with adduction, flexion, and supination of the distal fragment. An acceptable angulation is 20 to 30 degrees. The angulation causes decreased thumb web space and MCP hyperextension. For reduction, you want to use the acronym TAPE to remember longitudinal traction for T, A for abduction, abduction, P for pronation, and E for extension. Treatment is with closed reduction with K-wires through the CMC. For an intraarticular fracture dislocation of the first metacarpal, this is a Bennett fracture. It's an intraarticular base fracture with two components. The volar fragment is small and attached via AOL and trapezium, and the dorsal fragment is attached to the metacarpal shaft. The dorsal fragment tends to migrate proximally, dorsally, and radially, and that's due to the forces of the APL, the ADP, EPL, and EPB and that creates apex dorsal angulation. Rolando fractures are comminuted into articular base fractures of the first metacarpal. These can appear as a T or Y type, and the name is due to the appearance on X-ray. Um, for the fifth metacarpal or the small, um, you can have a reverse Bennett, meaning a fifth metacarpal base fracture with dorsal subluxation, deforming forces in, uh, include the FCU and ECU and the ADM. You want to reduce these with traction, pronation, and dorsal or radial pressure at the base. And the treatment for this ultimately is uh, closed reduction and percutaneous pinning or open reduction and internal fixation. Wow. Thanks. Finally, we got through the metacarpal. Metacarpals, they... never thought so much about metacarpals in my life. They were a lot. They were a lot. So, okay, we'll move into the CMC joints now. The thumb CMC is a saddle joint. It has 16 ligaments supporting the joint. That's a lot. The anterior oblique and dorsal radial are the most important. And the dorsal capsule of the thumb CMC is contiguous with the extensor and abductor mechanism. So of the volar ligaments, like I said, the anterior oblique ligament is the primary stabilizer. And as the dorsal ligaments, the dorsal radial is the most important, um, then followed by the posterior oblique and the dorsal central ligaments. And for evaluation of thumb CMC, you can get an x-ray with the dynamic stress view, which accentuates radial ulnar laxity, opposing thumbnails view, which accentuates dorsal volar laxity, or Robert's view, which is the official view of the CMC. And ultrasound can also be used to view the ligaments. <laughs> All right, uh, miscellaneous facts. Let's get to it. So um, Salter-Harris, we talked a little bit about this earlier. It's a classification of growth plate fractures, the Seymour fracture is the DIP version of this fracture. Type 1 Salter-Harris fractures, you can, you can remember the types based on the mnemonic Salter. So type 1 is straight across the growth center of the bone. Type 2 is an oblique fracture above the growth center of the bone. Type 3 is a fracture of the bone below the growth center. Below, like an L in the middle of below, that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, and then type four is through a fracture through the bones above and below the growth centers. And then type five is crush. It, it, it's supposed to be ER. It erases the growth center of the bone. So there we go for that it mnemonic. Stretched 
the meaning of a mnemonic. We went for it. We we went for it though. Um, wrist fractures, these are sometimes handled by plastic, sometimes handled by ortho, but always important to know. So supracondylar fractures occur mostly in patients five to seven years of age uh, from a fall on an outstretched hand or a foosh, if you will. There is a risk of ischemia with these fractures. So you need to do immediate closed reduction via gentle traction and elbow flexion, followed by operative closed reduction if that's unsuccessful or if there is evidence of ischemia. The most common types of wrist fractures include a distal radius fracture, then followed by the scaphoid, the triquetrum, and the lunate fractures. And finally, we'll finish on types of bone grafting because this is always on the in-service and is always confusing. So osteoconduction refers to replacement of bone graft material through the process of creep substitution. So the, this includes cortical grafts and calcium hydroxyapatite. So osteoconduction is a creep. Osteoinduction involves stimulation of the bone forming cells from surrounding host tissues. This includes cancellous bone grafts, demineralized bone matrix, and cortical bone. Osteogenesis are autografts like cancellous and vascularized bone. And in terms of when to use which, non critical bone defects under six centimeters can undergo autologous bone grafting. So this can be things like corticocancellus from the iliac crest. Otherwise, distraction osteogenesis may work as long as the bone has adequate stock on either side of the fracture. That Here we takes have care of hand fractures. You want to do some fast facts? Let's do it. Do it. Okay. So going back to our general principles, we'll just go through three quickly. So spiral fractures are the result of torsional force. Axial loading compression uh, causes oblique fractures. And then tension or three-point bending causes transverse fractures. We have the world's worst mnemonic for Salter-Harris fractures. So, <laughs> so S being a straight through for a type one, A being above for a type two, lower or below L for a type three, T meaning two or through uh, for type four, and then ER for erasure, which is a word I never used once in a while. <laughs> okay? Erasure of growth, or you can just remember five, crush. Crush type five. And then our most common wrist fractures in order, most common distal radius, followed by scaphoid, followed by tri triquetrum, followed by the lunate. And there we have it, folks. Yay. My favorite okay. subject. The best, and truly the best. Subtle nod to Rachel Hine. We miss you. We love you. We should have done this with you. We should have done this with you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Hand Fractures, our quick hits discussion today. Hopefully it's helpful. Yeah, we'll be back with more. Stay tuned. Thanks. <laughs>